Welcome to Panelism, the podcast where we talk about the comics and graphic novels worth having on your shelf and more. I am Taylor Trask, and today it's another fireside chat. And we're talking to somebody who has actually been involved with panelism uh, at a deeper level for a while now. He has a, another show on the Panelism Network. Um, he and I are actually launching a new show, which we'll talk about uh, soon, too. And um, just uh, has a lot of interest in writing and comics, creativity. Uh, he's written some, some uh, web series that are really fantastic, one of which I sort of had something to do with. We may or may not talk about that. Um, and just overall has been a really great collaborator and um I, i've been trying to get him in the studio for a little while too because i've i we're going to talk deep on some things that i think um you guys will be interested in hearing uh hearing about uh i'd like to welcome charles wefso thank you taylor thanks for having me today yeah man so i guess to give folks uh, who have never heard of you before or have never listened to your other shows or anything get, just give us the the top level kind of bio who you are and what you do yeah so i am a writer i uh live in Colorado and I um for the last two years th three years off and on we've been doing the Hardy Boys Drink Book podcast on the Panelism Network um the Hardy Boys Drink Book podcast is a uh, experience where I sit down with writers um comedians other creative people and we read through one of the books in the Hardy Boys mystery series and then we just talk through the plot of it as we have some drinks, and then um, I find a local bar. They make us a custom cocktail, and we interview the bartender, talk a little bit about um, about their bar, and kind of plug that as well. Um, it's it's great because we've had a lot of very funny people on the uh, on the podcast, and uh, a lot of comedians, right? A lot of comedians, and the the work really lends itself to comedians because. If you have never listened to one of uh, the episodes of our show or if you've never read a Hardy Boys book or if you haven't read it since you were a little kid, they are bizarre <laughs> and baffling and almost every page is filled with uh, something worth commenting on. Um, yeah, just and just the like outdated language and tropes and... They almost feel like they were written... Like, like, especially kind of the, the kind of humor we find ourselves in now with like Archer and Rick and Morty, this kind of arch, yes. sort of very very hyper stylized kind of humor. It almost feels like they were written now to make fun of the to genre. To make fun of the genre, yeah. right? Because yeah. they're so, uh, yeah, because they're such great examples. They are the, the peak example of that genre. Um, there are, uh, you know, there's all those things where y you have the modern version of it. And it's when you finally go back and watch the original, it feels like a pastiche. Yeah. I was trying to yeah. think of, uh, oh, we were watching, Kristen, uh, my wife, had never seen Rosemary's Baby. Really? So we were watching, yeah, it was just one of those, you know, like, uh, you you miss you miss a classic, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And then she was like, I've never seen Rosemary's Baby. And I was like, well, let's watch it. And she said, I have seen this so much in pop culture. Um, and we talk about this with The Prisoner, that you don't even realize that, like, where all of these scenes and shots and lines came from. The patient zero. Yeah, that exactly. Style. And yeah. then you watch, and it's like almost, Rosemary's Baby almost seems like a pastiche of mm -hmm. that era of horror movies. What's really funny, I'm so glad you referenced Rosemary's Baby, because completely coincidentally, last night, I, Rosemary's Baby is obviously Roman Polanski. I watched another Roman Polanski movie, also about the devil, called The Ninth Gate, which is one of my favorite movies ever. Okay. I'll explain that another time. But like, it is funny because it is almost itself a parody of Rosemary's Baby because it's kind of this black comedy mm -hmm. sort of. You can tell like Roman Polanski does not take the cult seriously, so he's just it's just it's really yes. kind of wackadoo. But it, I just I was watching that going, 
and having revisited Rosemary's Baby, baby recently, mm-hmm. I was like, oh my God, he's even kind of reincorporating that into his own work. You know, it's really, it, was, it was interesting to see that commentary on the original thing, which has spawned so much. Yeah. So Hardy Boys, the books themselves, how many, I guess, episodes have you guys so done? So we have done um, multiple episodes or two-parters mm-hmm. uh, because there's so much to talk about. We've done 20 books. Wow. Um, and we've done three Nancy Drew books as well. Um, so the, the final episode, which will come out uh, with Mike Marlowe, is going to be our – he was our first – uh, our tenth book, and he's going to be doing the uh, the twentieth book. That'll be Fantastic. coming out as our last episode. Oh, that's great! So, so this is a kind of an announcement. You are actually you're 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 not retiring it, but you're, you're you've reached the end. You've yes, kind of- we we have done the amount of books. I I liken uh, the reading the Hardy Boys book to us willfully sustaining brain trauma. Um, <laughs> it is it is an experience where uh, if you're in the room with a person who's reading one of these books. You constantly just hear them, uh, you say, but why? Or like, <laughs> you know, see them throw up their hands or throw the book down yeah. or like, and uh, yeah, and it's it's to the point where they're really fun to go through, but y- you could go forever. Yeah. Um, but it gets to the point where, you know, you got a new adventures and stuff. Um, on that note, my, uh, my brother, Jack, who co-produces the show with me and has been a host many times, um, and my sister, Faye, who has been um, one of our bartending guest hosts on the show, um, they are starting a new podcast called Drunken Gumshoes, and they're going to be taking a look at some of the other. Uh, we constantly got asked to take uh, on other mystery children's mystery series, so that's going to be the dedication of that. Uh, nice. There's a special episode posted on the Hardy Boys Drink Book channel right now, so if you want to check out the first episode of Drunken Gumshoes, that's up there right now. And their first book that they did was Encyclopedia Brown Saves the Day. Yes, I love it. So, uh, which I'm- yeah, which I I had not I had no idea. I had no memory of what Encyclopedia Brown actually was. Mm-hmm. It's a parody of crime noir mm-hmm. as a little kid. And now I just really want a very seriously taken uh, <laughs> Encyclopedia Brown series starring a nine-year-old or, yeah. or younger as the lead like crime noir character. I think that'd be fantastic. Yeah, yeah. And there, I mean, younger actors too can pull. I mean, that kid from Umbrella Academy, mm-hmm. just as, as one, I mean, he's the actual age he's supposed to be and he's acting like a 60-year-old. So like you can get, you could cast that correctly. I love this though because... With podcasts, yeah, there's a lot of podcasts that just kind of run on indefinitely. This is one of them. But, like, you guys are taking almost the British model and saying, hey, you know what? We've we've created a body of work. We're done. Mm-hmm. And it's actually sort of spinning off another thing that's starting its own journey now. Yeah. Which is really great. And these will – the entire Hardy Boys Drink Book podcast will be always available on the Panelism Network. So go search it wherever you find podcasts. Subscribe. And we'll just be this great kind of piece of art and work you guys have done that will live on. But the other nice thing is it's evergreen. You can come back to it in five right. to ten years, and it's not like it's out of date. The books are still the books. You guys have still – Sure. The, you Maybe know, the some of our pop culture references will no longer be quite as apt. Exactly. Uh, you know, but yeah. that's what happens. Um I really enjoy the uh, one of my favorite television programs of all time is the TV show Red Dwarf. And mm. it's one of those that's very hard to introduce anyone into, partly because there is a heavy layer of 80s British pop culture humor yeah. smeared on the top of it. And I think of the show as so timeless, but a lot of times I go back and I'm like, how did I just give these jokes a pass when they're clearly referencing people yeah. I've never heard of that yeah. were on TV? On Some, sometimes the delivery, though, is important. Yep, exactly. Like, you, you don't know why you're laughing, but like, that's just funny. And then you, you know, you're like, that, that guy's a terrible musician. I can tell from the context text of yeah, the joke. Yeah. You know? Which yeah. is great writing. Like yes. if you can make that accessible to anybody besides, and if you can get it on two levels, great, but if somebody can still get it anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, like the Shreks of the world or the toy, even the Toy Stories to some extent, like that sort of dual audience yeah. 
you know, writing is great. Tell, speaking of writing, tell me more about your projects. Tell the listeners kind of some of the stuff you've done. You've written quite a bit of things, plays, web series, all of that good stuff. I have, yeah. I haven't um, been producing a whole lot of content recently. I've been working on a couple of just like, you know, personal projects and stuff. But over the last uh, couple of years, I wrote two web series that you can go find right now. One of them that we worked on together was called Weird Denver. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of a, um, a parody of, well, it's basically two inept stoners try to be paranormal investigators. And it falls apart, you know, pretty quickly. But we got some great actors who worked on that. We got some great crew and stuff. And then the other series um, that you can find at ataneyrateshow.com is the show At Any Rate. It stars my brother, uh, Jack Wefso, as himself. And um, I wrote and uh, produced that with my uh, friend Adrian Bishop, which you and I have both mm-hmm. worked with a lot. And then my brother and I, uh, we wrote the episodes for that. It um, Again, we had a really great crew. It turned out really well. I'm very proud of it. But yeah, you can check that out on at anyrateshow.com. On that note, I've been meaning to ask you that we've talked about this kind of a little before, but is at any rate, was was Toast of London kind of a, a inspiration point for that? You know, I I actually can't remember in the uh, in the timeline of things where uh, Toast of London and at any rate intersected in like our consciousness. I'm sure we were aware of both of them. Um, it, at any rate, actually started because some other guy had made a web series and then it had, you know, maybe it was the high maintenance guy or something like okay, that. But it, yeah. it was one of those web series that had launched. And we were just joking about how, um, you know, Jack just needed a vehicle to launch him. And then mm-hmm. we quickly hammered out five uh, outlines and we're like, well, let's just write these. And then, you know, and it was one of those things where it just uh, we took five uh kind of archetypal moments from mm-hmm. Jack's career as a mid-market actor. Yeah. And uh, and they they came together really well. And uh, yeah, Toast of London definitely, I God, I adore that show so much. Well, I, I didn't bring that up. It just to... has such a reality break. And yeah, we, yeah. we strove very, very hard to not, um, you know, when we felt ourselves getting a little too sitcom-y or too far away from the from the truth, we uh, we pulled it back. That's why I appreciate Coast of London. Anyway, though, it goes the other way. Was. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's why I bring it up because it's it not that it, it in any way is is you know it's similar ish, but like Toast of London goes different. way surreal, and you guys take them take the other road, and I like that difference and yeah. kind of juxtaposing those. If you haven't seen Toast of London, by the way, it's a Matt Berry show. It's pretty fantastic. It's, it's so still good. on Netflix. Anyway. Um, let's talk comics. How long have you been reading comics or graphic novels? What's your sort of journey in or out of, of the genre? Well, I always say that I learned to read so that I could read comic books. Oh, um, I love that statement. Jack is seven years older than me. Um, is he really that much yeah. older? I didn't so, realize this. So when I was growing up, you know, Jack was already a devoted, uh, you know, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, mm-hmm. X-Men um, comic fan. Mm-hmm. And so... If I was, you know, two years old when Jack was nine years old, that was my kind of, you know, bright, colorful art and amazing pictures to look at. And there reaches a point where your older brother won't sit next to you and read each panel to you to explain what's happening. And I remember that being a huge motivation for me to like as a little kid to learn to read so that I could read each of the panels and not just look at just the art and stuff. So it has been a... Um, and then, you know, I grew up in Rapid City, mm-hmm. South Dakota, where there is one comic book store called yep. Storyteller. Mm-hmm. And um, I spent, 
so much time there as a kid. You know, it was definitely my like uh, my like happy place as a child. So it's yeah, I can't I can't remember a time that I didn't have comic books. Sto- a big shout out to Storyteller, by the way. That's I mean, for a shop in Rapid City and Rapid City's awesome. I, I mean, I'm from Wall, so I was very yeah. close to there. But Storyteller, I've been every time I'm back, I stop by. It's still a really well curated shop. It is. Like you'd think, you know, for a smaller city of Rapid City size, what like 50,000 people or something like sure. that. We're, they were lucky. I'm I'm glad that's there. It's the, they, they do such a great job. It's actually a shop too where I discovered the East of West for the oh, very first time. That was go. my origin point. So yeah, I always I always think fondly of Storyteller. Shout out to Jordan and Prez. If, yeah, if you're still there, I'm sure you are. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um. So I guess, uh, did you ever fall out of comics, um, or have you stayed consistently reading ever since then? No, I actually. Uh, well, I don't know if I would say fell out of comics. I I would say that. Um, there was a period of time when I was maybe 19, uh, early 20s, where I stopped reading anything by um, Marvel or DC. Yeah. I had, like, fell out of reading those weeklies. But I, you know, started to uh, kind of catch up on a lot of series that I had missed over mm-hmm. the years. Um, some that were, like, still Marvel or DC series that I had just never read. Um, and I read a lot more, like, graphic novels and things like that. Um, and then... After that, actually, most of my most of my mid twenties, there was a huge gap in reading comic books regularly. Mm-hmm. Um, occasionally, somebody would be like, "Hey, check out this particular graphic novel or something like, or a volume of a series." But it really hasn't been until the last two years or so that I've started to get back into like, and especially reading uh, comics weekly, like I've been doing with X Men, yeah. has been a very. I haven't done that since I was a kid. Let's um, well, let's talk about X Men. So that's we talked earlier about the books you wanted to, to review, and I, you know, definitely wanted to talk about X Men, but specifically, um, we'll start with House of X, Powers of Ten, and if that dips into the the, yeah. the run, you know, since then that's great too. But I, you know. Th- I have my fandom of X Men began with the '90s Fox cartoon, Absolutely. as a lot of people's yeah. did. You know, which was just kind of it was just always on. It was always there. It gave you an accessible entry point to just know who these characters are, know who. You know, and then and the pantheon of characters in X Men is, is huge, and there's so many powers that sort of duplicate in other characters. It gets a little tricky. So that was good. But then the first Brian, the first two Brian Singer movies really locked me in. I'm like, ooh, I yes. love this world i love these characters i love the complexity of it the thousand shades of gray you know the the x the the charles and magneto relation like all of that i loved it and what what a perfect example of an archetype of a superhero movie they Mm -hmm. they were getting the formula down on x-men one they even brought in joss whedon at the last minute to rewrite it like they still do today yeah yeah. um you know like just the fact that they already knew like they were it holds i was watching x2 the other day and it still freaking holds up even i mean X-Men 1's great. It sort of was the first... I mean, that was 2000, 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. That was the yeah. first one. But, like, X2 really... It, it took the wonderful little things. Even that little sort of hat tip towards Gene at the very end of X1, they absolutely fleshed out in X2. Uh, X3, we'll be one I'm talking about. But, like, that second one, just with Brian Cox as, like, a striker, just, like, everything mm-hmm. about it was just... it. It would you could put that out today, and maybe some visual effects aren't quite as good. But even the Nightcrawler stuff is still amazing. Oh, it's like, so it just, good. It works yeah. so the well. In the White House. Oh my um, God, that's whole the, sequence. Uh, I will say though that uh, despite all the problems with X three, Kelsey Grammer's Beast was worth <laughs> the entire catastrophe. And they kept him for the yes, the little because, cameo in Days of Future. You know, it's, it's like seeing J Jonah Jameson come back. You're yeah, like yeah. who else really do we want to see? It's 
it's why I'm, we're already getting off topic here. That's right. But it's why, in my opinion, if we do get, you know, MCU, X-Men, mm-hmm. I... I I don't need Professor Charles Xavier to be a person who is alive. Yeah. I need Professor Charles Xavier to be an oil painting of Patrick Stewart. Yes. That is hanging in the main entryway oh to God. the Xavier Mansion. Yeah. And they can say founded in 1963 by Ch- Professor Charles oh Xavier. Oh, my God. And that. I love and that. And just been like, we have been keeping mutants secret <laughs> and safe for 40 years. Oh, hell, know? man. You just pitched me on. Because I've then, been thinking about that. And then you that. can drop in and be like, this is, you know, I, I think that one of the things that the re- for all the failures of these new X-Men movies, one of the things they did well was say this one takes place at this time mm-hmm. I think they just need to build themselves a timeline better where they're mm-hmm. like who were the X-Men in 1982 yeah. and like let's tell a story that takes place in 1982 yeah. you know um, yeah. but but whatever I love that because if they've been if they've been keeping themselves hidden that just that amplifies sort of how they view themselves and how they view the world viewing them mm-hmm. which is so that takes us into House of X Powers of Ten so the more than anything this series for me, like it, I mean, I dabbled with reading X Men comics over the years, but beca- you know, with the Frank Quietly stuff is obviously great. Grant Morrison stuff, yes. you know, that, that's, that's when I kind of um, really when Joss Whedon did his series following Grant Morrison. Mm-hmm. That's kind of when I started to disengage from X Men. But I still, I did, and I would check I would, in. I would check in. I, I, yeah, the I'd Utopia be like, stuff. Okay, or... but the 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 po- I mean, there's two poles of this. Obviously, Hickman was was yes. spearheading it, and I've. Never disguise my love and adoration of Hickman on this podcast. So people no, are probably it was definitely the thing that got me like that, yeah. that start because I had you know obviously read his Fantastic Four run and his Avengers run and uh, and other stuff as well. But like those two in particular, seeing how he approached Marvel properties, yeah, I was like, I was nervous because I was worried. Sometimes he can get into kind of patterns yeah, that, that yeah. are predictable but i was but i'm it seems like he's doing at least something slightly different. and 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 by the way spoilers going forward if you haven't oh, yes. read this or any of the books we're talking about please pause or if you don't care that's fine too but the other big hook of of house of x powers of 10 i'll just call it house from now on sure the thing, the thing about house that really hooked me in was for the first time at least in in my experience the x-men had personal agency they weren't pariahs they weren't victims they weren't like they didn't feel like that they're like you know what we're we've got we've all got powers we're gonna like own that and we're gonna like we're gonna tell you how we're gonna live not the other way around and that's that switch in confidence really made it it was like oh my god finally like because we've gone years and years and years of them being kind of the social outcasts and now they're they i mean i i kind of side with magneto on this or even apocalypse it's Mm -hmm. like hey we are special we we're gonna own it and we're gonna show you we're gonna be the lizzos of this whole thing and and own it i loved that even before the big amazing twist which we will talk about soon i'm sure i just i that that feeling of like oh my god the mutants are finally doing what i have always wanted them to do this entire goddamn time absolutely and it's one of those things where like the x-men as a premise they have unbelievable abilities Mm -hmm. they you know they can completely change the uh in in much the same way that humans compared to other species on this planet Mm -hmm. can like alter their environment in unimaginable ways to other species. That's what mutants can do. Mm -hmm. Um, And the fact that they have been, you know, living in a bunker in Australia and stuff like that, and you're, you know, or living in secluded islands. And it does, it's the, it's the change in footing without the change in, uh, in kind of principles. Mm -hmm. That's what I really like about. And that's one thing that I think that Hickman alone Maybe not alone, but is capable of writing that. Yeah. That like, no, they're not. Uh, I like how alien they appear and how like mm-hmm. how unhuman a lot. But 
their attitude is not we're going to take over the world. Their mm-hmm. attitude is like that's just going to happen anyway. Yeah, we're going yeah. to try to manage the, your species' decline in the most humane way possible. Yeah, you well, know, and it, it never made sense to me that they would, especially when you consider them part of a larger Marvel pantheon. Mm-hmm. Never made sense to me that you've got all these other characters out there who have, you know, like super soldier serum and powers and stuff. And yeah, there may be some difficulty, but they're largely embraced as heroes. And yet here are the X-Men, which have to fight tooth and nail just to have, you know, in their minds to feel like they're accepted. I'm like, you guys, there's way more of you. And, and maybe that's part of the problem, but it's just, it just never made sense to me. So this for the first time for me feels like this is the X-Men I've always wanted is, is these characters taking personal agency, managing the decline of humanity, but Mm -hmm. also trying to ward off their eventual demise, which is why powers of 10 is such a great companion uh, story arc to the, to the house of X series. You get to see them in the far, 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 far future. And how many times they, they, have tried to do this or have uh, Moira has tried to do this and it's failed. And so you get to know like, okay, they've tried this. They've tried this. They've tried this. It's always failed. The story we're in now is a new attempt and it's interesting and fresh. So it's, it's not like they're doomed to fail, Yes, but maybe some of those same things will repeat themselves. We don't know. Yeah. I, um, I think that I always actually have a problem with, cause that is the uh, argument I hear the most against the X-Men being interesting is why does everybody hate the X-Men when they're fine with, Spy- you know, with, uh, yeah. with the Avengers or whatever. Spider-Man's a good example. Spider-Man's a good example because people bo- go both ways on Spider-Man. They, mm-hmm. they both hate Spider-Man for no reason or, you know, they think he's amazing. Um, I feel like it's actually very understandable that there would be a false sense of meritocracy when mm. it comes to superpowers. This idea, it's like... You know, being impressed by somebody who made a hundred million dollars, or being impressed by somebody who won a hundred million dollars. Uh, it's the idea yeah. that like um, Tony Stark built all that stuff. Reed Richards built a rocket and flew his family, and they got powers. You know, uh, Captain America. You know, was supposed to be this. You know, mm-hmm. and it even even to the point where accidents. You know, maybe uh, color your perception of like, well, it was meant to be, but mm. mutation is a crapshoot. You know yeah. what I mean? Good guys, bad guys, uh, amoral people, anybody can be a mutant, and mm-hmm. uh, you don't have any say in that. So this idea that you would be inherently suspicious, also that you know what Fox News would look like in that, uh, true, in that universe. Yeah, you're right. You would never see uh, a mutant that looks like. Um, Jean Grey, unless it was a story about how she, she can control your mind. Yeah. Um. You know. You know. You'd see mutants like Blob, and uh. <laughs> you know. Uh. Pe- you know. The Morlocks is mostly who you'd see on the news. Yeah. People living in sewers and stuff like that. And that's where you'd think of mutants. Yeah. Know, that's as, a good. That's an interesting point. The the idea that you were that it like just sort of happened to you. See, and they take it like from the mutant point of view. They feel like, largely throughout the history of X-Men, they have felt like a victim of circumstance. Mm -hmm. Whereas you flip it, the humans in those those same worlds are like, well, this happened to you. You know, it didn't happen to me, so therefore screw you. You know, we're going to hate, we're going to marginalize you guys. But I I like, you're right, the, uh, the meritocracy element, which is a very American sensibility. So really you're taking this, you're taking that and layering in like, well, what if everybody just randomly had you know magic powers essentially mm-hmm. but it was completely a crapshoot what then i like have you been reading the x-men run since uh house and powers have closed have you been- i not only that we have been following all of the all x-men of series <laughs> weekly jack and i have been doing a weekly check-in where mm-hmm. we've been uh where we've been keeping tabs on all of them and i have um 
it's been a rocky launch mm-hmm. uh, coming out of this, mostly because you had this clear, unified story. And it's a Jonathan Hickman problem, in mm-hmm. my opinion. He uh, he has these big stories that he wants to tell with mm-hmm. these big frameworks. And, uh, well, and you know, we, you and I kind of talked a lot about the Watchmen uh, mm-hmm. television series as well. Mm-hmm. It's that thing of... Uh, the metaphor I used for Watchmen was it's like going out with a friend who won't stop drinking mm. where you're like, all right, man, well, I'm beaten. He's like one more bar. And then well, let's close this place out. And then there's an after hours place. And then we're going to go grab a bottle on the way back to his place. And you're like, stop, finish, <laughs> finish the night, you know, mm. let it end. And that's, and that's the thing I think with that's happened so far with this launch after house of X is he had all of this great, groundwork to tell a story Mm -hmm. but he cannot stop Mm -hmm. putting more pieces on top of it without um and he's just now six issues into x-men starting to really develop the storyline that he uh that he set up to the point that i wouldn't be surprised if he lost a lot of readers because you're so engaged with this narrative you're Mm -hmm. so invested it was a really tight narrative, and then he and it was so tight and then Mm -hmm. he just slams the emergency break on it to try to give you a lot more stuff to go off of how much of that though because we're not just talking about the x-men series that is carried on which he is writing we're talking about excalibur we're talking about marauders but see that was those series are the places to do those things sure him him taking the core Mm x-men series yeah and using every each of the first five issues to introduce mm-hmm. wildly separate seemingly unconnected plot points what's what's the biggest offender in your opinion like what's the one uh, plot point you're like oh what the they're all they're all interesting in their own right though mm-hmm. they all could be handled well the um there was this great moment in House of X uh, where Doug Ramsey, who is the uh, shining star of this entire uh, series, in my opinion, including all of the other um, spinoff series. Like, Doug Ramsey is the character that Jack and I talk about the most. Mm, interesting. Um, be, uh, but there's a moment where uh, Professor X just takes Doug Ramsey to Krakoa, and he's like, you can talk to anything. Um, and Doug... Uh, Krakoa says one word and he's like it was something like and then he tells a long story about how Krakoa used to be two islands and there was clearly a gate to limbo it was what it looks like to me like to the hell dimension that was opened there Apocalypse showed up with his horsemen his horsemen went through and they ended up having to send half of uh, Krakoa into another dimension and they've never been whole since and they were like, that's freaking weird. That's a cool plot line. Mm-hmm. Well, rather than like develop that out, start to see Apocalypse, lay those seeds, start to see him trying to get in contact with Krakoa to this other part of the island, his old horseman, the second issue of <laughs> X-Men, the whole freaking half of the island just shows back up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it felt like... Uh, it felt like uh, being told that your show is going to end this season after you didn't have cha- – and, you know, you're like, well, it's back. Okay, that's resolved. And I know there's going to be more laid out for that, but th- that was an entire 
Like that was an entire arc. Yeah. Um, oh, I see. Okay. That you know, sense. that's yeah. now buried inside of another one. The the botanists, those like golden girls botanists. I had forgotten about that entirely. That are, <laughs> that, are, that uh, would make sense in the way he's writing New Mutants, which is a comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, don't make sense in the core X-Men That's a great thing. point. In fact, I had I have forgotten about those because it was so off-putting. And I'm like, what? And I, I almost mentally just shifted it to, oh, it's one of those other side series, right? Yeah. And it's not been, it might oh. be developed uh, again, you yeah. know. But it was just there for no reason, and now it's just another thing that's yeah. on top of it. Where really, I just want to, I want to have an A story and a B story. Really, yeah. like yeah. it was so tight having the uh, the B story of Moira's lives, mm-hmm. which we'll we'll talk, probably talk mm-hmm. about a little bit more because that's also. Just let's just jump. Let's, let's jump yeah. into that so, because that that to me was the that greatest, was the hardest jump for me, but it was one of my favorite decisions. It was the greatest innovation, I think, other than giving the the mutants like you know way more agency like is this this idea that Moira is essentially immortal and that she can restart her life with the knowledge that she learned in the previous lives yeah. and carried on forward and like has that ever been hinted at in previous X-Men no. stories that's an entirely new No it isn't and that's that's the biggest uh the hardest part and why so many people weren't sure whether this was taking place in the um in the main marvel continuity or in one of her previous lives you know mm-hmm. uh there was a lot of like online argument about that i think that's the reason why hickman put the fantastic four in the first issue of house of x as a way of being like mm-hmm. no not only is this the fantastic four it's my fantastic four so yeah. like this is in at least the world you know uh, of of that series um but it's never been hinted at. And one of the things that always made Moira um, interesting is that she was a human who had dedicated her life to working with mutants, mostly because her son was a mutant. Mm-hmm. Um, but the only thing, and I think the thread that he's going off of is Moira McTaggart got the legacy virus. She mm-hmm. was the only human to get the legacy virus. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is like, oh, because she wasn't a human. Mm-hmm. She was a mutant. Yeah. Um, that said... Because she was the only human to get the legacy virus, every scientist in the Marvel Universe looked at her DNA Mm -hmm. and never saw that she had the... Though I do like that when Destiny makes that comment in that wonderful scene with Destiny, Mm -hmm. uh, that she's a mutant who is invisible to other mutants. Yeah. Which is... uh, not, which is only useful until you know what you're looking for and then you can find her right away. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I, yeah, I liked that. I also liked though in, uh, they referred to black brain psychics. So I don't know if that's something he, he got from another source, but I really like the idea that you can have a mutation that is just, your brain cannot be read by psychics. That mm-hmm. might be your only mutant power and you might only uh, like, know about it the first time you meet a psychic and they might be like you know you're a black brain what's interesting about that is that it took brian and then Fr- or frank and then brian herbert like books upon books upon books in the dune universe mm-hmm. to generate a person that you know like the whole quitsock hadarak legacy was creating somebody who couldn't be interpreted by mm-hmm. psychics essentially yeah. like uh, in in the x-men versus like oh that's just another mutation, mutation. but do you think the the um the Moira thing for me, the the genius of it was, and and the problem for me was there are so many starts and stops in the X Men canon with different creators come in or reboots yeah. and resets. The Moira innovation allows all of that to be canon, yeah. and I was just like, oh my god, now I don't feel left out if I am super interested. I can go back to each one of her little lifespans and see. And they even set up some that some they don't disclose at all, which is another yeah. Hickman plot point, which may hopefully will get resolved at some point, but. 
It was just a great way to tie all this in to a central point and say, this is the X-Men going forward. Everything that's happened did happen, but Moira is the key to all of that. Yeah. And just that, that you know, she's that, that, that way station for all those things to go through. I think that's, that's worth sacrificing some of her own canon to allow all the canon to succeed. And none of it is on, like when you have a character who has the mental abilities of Charles Xavier, nothing can't be explained. That's yeah. that's one of those things is that if you're like, but wait, so you're saying that through all of this from uh, the point at the fair, which to me seems pre-X-Men founding, you mm-hmm. know what I mean? When she and Charles meet. When mean, she and Charles yeah. meet at that fair in Westchester, which I'm pretty sure is the fair that they end up getting the blob from. Oh, interesting. the blob from in like X-Men 4. Huh. Um, but regardless, um, when they meet there, is are you saying that like, you know, are they saying that Professor X has had all of this information all of this time? Mm-hmm. If that's the case, there are some baffling choices that he made that wouldn't seem to be uh, in le- because they didn't happen in previous universes, lives of Moira, like onslaught. Mm. Why would Professor Xavier, if he has all this knowledge of different timelines, try taking Magneto's brain out of his mind out of his body? Mm-hmm. That's foolish. If mm-hmm. you know like what things are eventually possible to lead to, but then again, none of the other timelines like um, the closest one that we saw that seems to have had a Krakoa and a nation that went wrong was the Life Nine. Yeah. Um, yeah. But but yeah, I don't know. I found. Um, that confusing but if he's somebody like professor xavier professor xavier can wipe portions of his memory away and Mm -hmm. then have you know okay on this day suddenly that unlocks i love the idea that xavier's mind is wildly different than the mind of a normal person it's yeah because he can do things like put things in boxes and seal things away and make like illusions and like Mm -hmm. i would love to see somebody dive more into that do you think xavier is much more of a wild card now that he's both able-bodied but able to back up and save and restore any mutant to power and do all the things you just said like he when when you see that first issue cover of him walk you know the him magneto gene mm. walking through the krakoan gate just that sense of confidence he's wearing the helmet he's got the black something about that image really captivated me and it made me go is charles really is is he the one that prevents them from succeeding each time like if you take charles away and i'm wondering almost if that's not something hickman's going to play with in this series is like look man we've seen charles try all these different things here he is at his almost his his peak in terms of both understanding cooperation you know he he has a vision for uniting mutant kind does it still fail because it's charles uh yeah i wonder about that i think um I, I hope that he leans away from that. There's mm. this uh, there's this plot that everybody seems to think is really fun to do with Charles Xavier, where you're like, because clearly he, you don't you don't found a school and name it after yourself without being a bit of an egotist. You don't you know mm-hmm. you, you, he clearly is an egotist. But at the same point, like there's this plot where you're like, turns out Charles Xavier is actually really messed up, and you're like. Yeah, but no, no more than anybody else. Yeah, uh, okay. that's my thing with like he's had to make serious compromises and do some terrible things. But I hope that they that they the thing that is even when he is wrong, he is ideologically consistent, and mm. they've they have kept he, he Hickman has managed even in this X Men series to keep Magneto, 
uh, Xavier, Mystique, Apocalypse, all ideologically consistent, mm, mm-hmm. despite the fact that they are all now doing things that are out of seemingly out of character. Um, you know, like the first laws that they come up with, the uh, the the clear, you know. But then again, Professor X is clearly manipulating them. They're, he's heavily implied he was he was assassinated and reborn after the first issue of X Force, mm-hmm. and they've been heavily hinting that like. There are some interesting things about that. And though they were not making it clear that Professor X planned his own assassination, mm-hmm. he saw it as a very great opportunity to galvanize the mutant community behind the resurrection protocols and prove that they could work. Mm-hmm. And that, like, even if Xavier dies, we can bring him back. Yeah. You don't, he's, not, he's not the linchpin mm-hmm. um, to the whole thing. Um, but I don't know. I It is, it is his alienness and wearing the mask that covers his eyes and never taking Storybro off because it always has to be running the backup programs and mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I love all that. There is a moment in, in the fourth issue, which is definitely the one that feels like picks up right after. It's the first one that feels like it picks up after House of X. Um, and it's when they go to uh, Davos. Oh, yeah. yeah. And uh, there are some... There are some cheesy lines, and there's also some Jonathan Hickman patting himself on the back in that, where, like, mm-hmm. he, he references Huxley, and he references the island. It's a very apt quote, and, you know, it's I have that book on my bookshelf. Mm-hmm. It's a great reference. But then a character has to be like, that's from the island. And you're like, yeah, okay, John. Like, uh, we know you're smart. Um, but the uh, – and the quote would have worked better if you didn't immediately – talk Mm -hmm. about what the island was about afterwards what do you think about i've mentioned this to you before too i have this thesis that hickman has his his dark tower is the white character and it's not in every book he does but it's in most of them yeah where every series whether independent own you know created or even like through marvel he's got a white character that usually personifies death in this particular case it's magneto i've Somebody else, maybe it was you, told me that and this is not a new thing. Magneto has gone white before when he's changing his, you yeah. know, when he when he wants peace or some, something about. So it's not an original thing, but yet again, here's this Hickman white character. Do you do you make anything of that? Um, well, so I think it's simple symbolism, mm-hmm. and uh, one of the things that I would like characters, the human characters, to talk more about in House of X is how freaking dramatic the mutants are yeah like everything is a performance with these people (laughs) there's never just like people sitting around a table talking no it has to be like one person levitating a steak knife with his hands (laughs) while another person is pontificating (laughs) on plato and you're like these people you know and there's a giant blue man you know like all of that stuff um but so i feel like it's it's lends itself to magneto's dramatic character okay he's magneto the white i was actually thinking you were talking about his like albino female character or blue female character oh sure because he has already introduced a uh pure white female character who, who speaks in black it looks like from what i can gather it was one of apocalypses it was one of so apocalypse's original horseman went into this other dimension mm-hmm. um i think it's limbo Okay. I mean, it looks like the raging fires of hell. Limbo would make the most sense with the X Men. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems like they've had generations of progeny while in this other. So she seems like she's a descendant of. Death. Oh yeah, she's that, literally dead. You're right. I forgot about that. That came. So, that's in the run after yeah. House Powers. Oh, that, I and, forgot about and that. And it's yeah. it's 
You're right. That's, doesn't that's seem more to have really anything, you know. And it, maybe he doesn't have a plan yet. He may maybe you know later on once he's ready to wrap up his career, it'll sort of he'll tie it to. But it seems like he's just seeding these characters. Yes. And I mean, it, the first one I believe started in Red Mask for Mars, which is not a great book, but like there's that white character mm-hmm. again. Um, one thing I've been meaning to ask you: Moira's timelines they they lay them all out, but that sixth life is yeah. omitted. Why do you think that is, or what do you think they're saving that for? Um, I think that he's saving that because he doesn't know what he wants to do with that, and he wanted to give himself, like, you know, something fun for people to mm-hmm. theorize about. Um, but I don't know. I could I could think of... Um, it's after the... It's the one directly before the timeline where she obliterates all the, of the... The Trasks. The Trasks. <laughs> Including um, me. <laughs> including you. Now, wait. I, I thought that when we that when we saw that timeline that where she lives for a thousand years, that mm-hmm. timeline that goes all the way until they're in the zoo and they finally figure out what the actual plan of the intelligence is. Yeah. I thought when he when she dies at the end of that scene, it said, thus ended the sixth life of Moira. I don't think so. I think that's... I'm looking at it right now online. It's... You may be... Because right. I think that was her sixth life, and then the one uh, oh, yeah, I think with Nimrod, oh, I think is, you're right. Shoot. Uh, yeah, is life nine. I'm looking because right. I was a little disappointed in that. I was like, oh, well, they already. You, I think you're right. Shoot, I didn't even pay that, but then, because I was disappointed in that too. I'm like, wait, was that the sixth life? I think you're right. Shoot. But the thing that frustrates me about that is if if that's the case, she says that uh, the whole point that she learns is that like the Sentinels weren't. Uh, there to defeat you. They were just there to buy the humans enough time to evolve past mutants, yeah. uh, to force their evolution to. Um, and then the first thing that she does in her next life is try to stop the invention of the Sentinel. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm like, yeah. no, you want to go after the, you know. Yeah. Um, one thing that I like that they have seeded, uh, I think, really well into all of the other X-Men uh, series that have come out of this is this idea that uh, the Omega Sentinel isn't just something that happens with uh, tech advancement. It's a point where m- technology that has been developed to kill uh, mutants becomes self-adapting mm-hmm. and becomes, you know, and so there's like genetic engineers who are trying to grow mm-hmm. uh, the perfect human to kill mutants. There's botanists that are trying to grow plants that are, uh, you know, or or growing monsters or harvesting things from other dimensions. There's lots of ways, or using magic, there's lots of ways that we could get something mm-hmm. that would eventually become an Omega Sentinel. Maybe it wouldn't look like what we think. It wouldn't I be like purple that. and robotic. But. I like that line of thinking because all these sub-series seem to be pursuing one strain of that or another. Yeah, and that's, that's another nice thing about this. Uh, Jack and I always talk about there's an issue of uh, of Excalibur in the 90s, which Jack and I read. Mm-hmm. Uh, the old Excalibur. The old Excalibur. Okay. Um, yeah, and the uh, original Excalibur series was much more focused on Captain Britain-style magic, Otherworld, uh, that kind of stuff. Uh, that is much more what this new series is focused on, mm-hmm. to the point that it's a little non... Like, it's hard to follow the yeah, series. Yeah. Um, but in the 90s, Excalibur transitioned more into just being... X-Men of Europe. It was Nightcrawler's kind of strike team. Mm. Um, it was, yeah, Nightcrawler, Colossus, and uh, and Kitty Pride, and then, like, Wolfsbane and Doug Locke, and, like, lots of really cool characters. Um, but there's an issue where the uh, Black Air, which is, like, a British... Or, yeah, they're, like, a British government agency. They steal Doug Locke, and mm. they cut his head off, and they're, they're like, uh, trying to... Because Doug Locke is a fusion of... Doug Ramsey and the Phalanx, just mm-hmm. like he is in House of X. He's mm-hmm. still that same character. Um, they uh, and 
Nightcrawler just gives this speech about how, like, for almost the entire time I've been an X-Men, we just react. Hmm. All we do is we get attacked or we hide or we run. And he's like, well, I'm sick of that. We're not doing that. Today we strike and we go in. And we also talked about this with House of X that I enjoyed the attack on the Orca station, even though there were some, like, uh, people have some issues with it. There, uh, every five to ten years, we get to see the X-Men perform a calculated strike mission. And it's always so freaking satisfying mm-hmm. to see the X-Men as a covert ops, paramilitary organization successfully perform. Mm-hmm. Because most of the time, they're just running. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so that this entire series, what we were talking about, that change of footing to being every one of these series seems to be, here is a threat. We're going to attack this, you mm-hmm. know. Uh, here is uh, the only one that really just, I cannot, we couldn't get our hands, like, it was called Fallen Angels. Mm-hmm. And it's about all of the characters you couldn't care less about, like uh, Quanon, who is the, you know, she's the woman from the body Psylocke was in for the last 25 years. Yeah. Her, and then, like, Teenage Cable, which is, who is just... <laughs> I don't know why Jonathan Hickman likes Teenage Cable, but he's the worst. It's almost like he was daring himself to do something with these characters. Like yeah, that. like yeah. that. Or he just couldn't, um, you know, he really enjoys writing kids. And yeah. he's yeah. terrible at it. Except, um, I mean, East to West, he pulls it off. Yeah. I don't know what uh, what is what it is about this world of, of uh, but man, he just, but he insists, you know, yeah. um, but that series was so bad. I think I canceled after five issues. It's the, it was the only one of the X-Men like launch series. I could cancel. It almost, it just feel like I'm going to take the characters that nobody likes and yeah. just try something just to see. And they wrote it in this incredibly like over dramatic, like internal monologues about like butterflies and rebirth <laughs> and stuff. And the art was so dark and like, you couldn't tell what was happening. That was my problem with it. Yeah. yeah. Just, uh, but yeah, the other, series have their moments but uh x-force is really good um, x-force i in, by your suggestion i've been reading excalibur 2 and i've liked it i, I like X, uh, apocalypse in that yes. series because i've never seen that side of apocalypse is almost kind of this like sage wizard character and not just like oh i'm apocalypse but he's like actually like you and know of course yeah if he's been around for four thousand years he knows magic yeah he's, and like, he's, yeah, he's my grimoire and that's his thing that he's super into he's like what now that mutants have ascended he's like i can get back to the thing i'm really interested in which is this yeah and he's wearing the priest robes and everything it's like that's i like that i like all that stuff too i um yeah i really like and i really like what the, with x-force i just really enjoyed that they're very pro, the series is so proactive mm-hmm. and uh beast who is just in his they're like it was like the best times that writers handle beast is that beast as a character is always willing to work with whoever can give him the most power mm-hmm. and whether it's apocalypse in the age of apocalypse storyline or uh I mean, there's so many stories. Or in uh, House of M, when he tries, when uh, Ant-Man's like, I think I might have found a cure for the mutant gene. And he's like, I'm going to get all your work shut down and you're going to get thrown out of here forever because yeah. you're uh, working against the power structure. Yeah. But in this, it was like Xavier just said, Hank, you do whatever you think is necessary to keep us safe. Yeah. And he was yeah. like, I have so many plans. <laughs> you know, and, and so he's like, you know, in one of them, he found out who hired an assassin and he just contracted that company. Yeah, and now he's running it as his own wet works company, yeah. and they don't even know that they're running these anti-mutant jobs for a mutant, and that he's just. I love that because Beast is a genius. Mm-hmm. And it's nice that we're finally seeing that you yes. know play out in, in more ways than one. I like seeing the characters uh, 
you know, being like handled at their highest level. Yeah. Uh, Black Tom Cassidy, a yeah. character I never cared about at all. Yeah. Who now, yeah. like, there's a data panel where he talks about his dreams and how he's been like, he'll like fall into the earth while he's asleep and wake up like in a puddle on like by a stream, or he woke up by a 50 foot stone statue of, of uh, the juggernaut his old best friend just like on Krakoa mm-hmm. and you're like yeah you're gonna get absorbed by Krakoa dude yeah. eventually we're yeah. not gonna have a different character like I think Black Tom and uh... but that's actually one of the things we've loved so much about how they've handled Doug Ramsey yeah is yeah. taking that character that's so many people think is so lame and uh, there there was a moment in the most recent issue spoilers if you haven't read it where uh, Cyclops is just walking, yep. and he walks by Doug and Warlock and Krakoa, mm-hmm. and then he looks again, and it's just Doug and Krakoa. And but his but Warlock is back on his arm again. Yeah, is is back on it's his fused arm. back in. Uh, yeah. Is back into him, and so they were all three communing. There's a there's one panel in House of X where he drags that finger across the leaf of Krakoa, and you see the circuitry kind of dig into it. Mm. And then in that future timeline, when you meet Krakoa, and it's like a human, it looks like Groot, you know, it's like mm. a human-shaped thing. It says, I used to be a man who could, who could, I used to be a man who could communicate with anything. Yeah. And I think that we're seeing the, just like the phalanx fused with Doug Ramsey, I think they're fusing with Krakoa, and we're seeing kind of like a, uh, a biological human and technological like entity starting to commune you're giving me something to think about because the whole end game was that the phalanx in their super evolved state subsume whatever humanity and mutant kind is at that point yeah and and you know all to you know incorporate them into their black holes i almost wonder if this isn't somehow a early sort of subterfuge to that like if we you know incorporate them now maybe they won't do that then you look at the uh the chapel that Krakoa builds for Nightcrawler. That mm-hmm. it's hollow so only he can get inside, but he has to take the leap of faith. He gets in there, it's a beautiful church. Yeah. That shape is the shape that becomes the uh the Tower of Nimrod that becomes right. the uh, the Ooh. archive. I never thought so about I'm like, that. Oh, oh my God. no, no, no. They're building a church and then they're gonna turn it into a library, then they're yeah. gonna turn it into an archive and it's gonna be the thing that eventually attracts the phalanx, you know. Yeah, <sighs> I think yeah, I never if, thought about that. If he's got oh. the um God. If he's got the the clear arc in his mind, I trust Jonathan Hickman. But I saw what happened to him, you know, uh, with Secret Wars, and that was yeah. clearly not where he was taking that series. Yeah. And and you know, way to make something positive out of it. But at the same time, like I could see this all getting derailed, and then they're being like, it was all a plot by Apocalypse. Yeah. That's that my better not worry. that better not be it because it's uh, just there's no. Nah, let's there's nothing pa- fun there. Yeah, let's let's break there because there's another book I want to talk to you about, um, which I'm also a fan of, but League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Yes, which is ending. It ended. Yeah. So Tempest came out uh, over this last summer. I think the last issue of it came out in August, and mm-hmm. then the uh, the trade paperback came out. Um, well, the hardcover, whatever, came out yeah. in January. So uh, yeah, I have been reading that series since I was ten years old or something like that. Wow. Um, which now looking like rereading it. I'm like, how did I have that at my house? Uh, you know what I mean? Like, there's there's some not for not safe for child children, not children's stuff in yeah, it. Um, yeah, but I 
I find it so interesting. So what point did you get to in reading? Um... I have read the first volume, the second volume. I have read uh, Century and the Black uh, Dossier. Okay. So you've gotten farther than most people did. The Black Dossier is it, its own interesting thing. And then I've yes. read some of the one-shots like the uh, Nemo Daughter one and okay. then, uh, some of that stuff. Uh, one of the things, and they talk about this, they did it in, in uh, Tempest. They do a letters column. So the, the last sliver of every issue is a black and white 60s british comic book with just you know featuring like a team of just the characters from uh forgotten british comic books yeah and uh there's a letter page in each of those and they're they're all fake letters written by uh alan moore um but one of the things he talks about is that you know we lost a lot of our readers uh after the second volume and uh, when we decided to take this thing in a whole new direction, and then we decided to get back to uh, basics with Nemo, and uh, and he's like, and then we lost about half of the people we had left. So here's the final volume, uh, and yeah, it was this. And I I love all of them, mm-hmm. but it's very true that like uh, if you give somebody that first volume and the second volume. Um, it sets them up for an expectation of something that they don't get. Yeah. Um, which is, oh, cool. I can't wait to see what the 30s team looks like. I yeah. can't wait to see what the... And while you get to see those, it's Alan Moore. So they're all cynical, not what you expected or wanted versions of those things, um, which I really like. Um, but I know that he he's talked about that a lot, that he's like, when people found out that I wasn't just going to keep doing the Justice League of literature yeah uh we lost a lot of people but he's yeah. like that's not the story i wanted to tell i yeah. wanted to take this idea of all fiction is an option which i'm i'm a bigger fan i mean like there's always with alan moore there's always the sort of surface level stuff but then he it's never gonna be that he always no. teases that and it's never that and then it's you always have to kind of go follow him where he goes but where he ultimately wants to go i think is a more fulfilling richer experience anyway yes so and- you just got to have to, the patience he's, it's almost like a really great you know, like I would imagine in the 70s when you're listening to Bowie albums for the first time, you're like, what the hell? It's on you, the listener, to try to get into it so that yes. you appreciate it more. It's not his job to hold your hand the whole way. No. And uh, that's Jess Nevin's job. Jess mm-hmm. Nevin's is the annotator. Who, yeah. Uh, who, yeah. Uh, you know, shout out to that guy. That's a what great What an incredible out. amount of work yeah. um, that yeah. that guy has done. Um, and uh, also his Encyclopedia of Victoriana, which is, is yeah. great. Um, yeah. But I... This last series, while good, very much was him resolving some of his narrative ideas. It's not as nearly as unified a story as any of the three pre- or mm-hmm. any of the four previous volumes. It's very much like um, picks up right after the events of Century and is just a kind of barreling forward of, um, you know, uh, to, to the conclusion. And I think it's a satisfying conclusion. Um, Would you have rather him taken his time? No, because he was done with it. Okay. And, uh, you know, he's, re- I don't know how many times he's retired, but he said that this is his last comic book he's ever going to write. Yeah. Um, and I'm glad that he finished it and got to finish this story. Um, I feel like if he, obviously, if you go back to 1999, you know, and he was able to, like, see how long he would be writing this, I'm sure he would have a much clearer idea of what the storyline was going to be. But, uh, but no, I think he did a good job. The biggest change... Uh, for this most recent series, which is much more similar to Black Dossier, is that Black Dossier, because it involved uh, like portions of in-world you know, comic strips and things like that, uh, there were all these different types. Kevin O'Neill got to do all these different types of art styles. Yeah, which I loved. It's great. Yeah. 
that is the case with Tempest, okay. the last series, that it uses all kinds of different art styles, which is great, but doesn't um, it doesn't make for a very coherent reading experience okay. because though you can follow what is happening, he's copying all these different comic artists and stuff like that. So it's harder to like stay focused on the scene when things are. Um, I'm just pulling up some here right now for those listening. Yeah. The, um, this is the, I actually got this issue because mm-hmm. I was like, interesting. And I didn't, I thought that was a one shot. I didn't realize the diversity yes, of, of the art style of the art style. Yeah. And it's very different. It's, it goes from like, you know, like Sunday comic style to like almost like space noir. Or like to, this one's like an illustrated classics cover. The Mino um, one. Yeah. 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 yeah and, it's great. It's fun to see him get to do, you know, Kevin O'Neill. It's interesting actually to go back and look at the first volume and see how restrained and like how uh yeah. how real everything appears other than the like landscapes of the cities. And by this point, most of it ta- you know, a lot of it takes place in like the blazing world where yeah. physics isn't even a thing. Um the the biggest thing I will say though for uh as like the greatest thank you I can give to Alan Moore and for this series is just the sheer amount of things I was exposed to. Yeah. By just being like, what is that a reference to? Yeah. And, you know, TV shows I never would have seen, mm-hmm. um, books I never would have read, poets I never would have read, paintings I never would have seen, buildings I never would have known about. Like, all of these things that because he packed so much into it, anytime, you know, I don't think I read anything by Michael Moorcock before I read, um, the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen and mm-hmm. he had some references that I looked up and then start, you know, and like that's an entire world of fiction yeah. that I would have never or maybe would have never uh, encountered. That's my, that's my favorite part about it is that they're infinitely rereadable. Like you read through it once for the story. You read yes. through it a second time to just be like, holy crap, the art is so, especially as it goes to your point, as it gets further along, Kevin O'Neill's like, let's just do everything. Yeah. And then you read through it a third time to just even start to gleam those references if you didn't the first time. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's and every so time I read it, I catch something that yeah. I'm like, oh my God, that's a reference to the Purple Cloud. I guess I hadn't read the Purple Cloud yeah. the last time I read this. You but know? you don't um, have to have to enjoy the story. Like no. that's the key. He doesn't make it. He, he doesn't force you to but he's like man if you like this keep going keep digging i I think that's true but i feel like um in the same way that venture brothers start starts to uh become overwhelmed by its continuity i Mm -hmm. feel like that happened to league of extraordinary gentlemen too sure the first two volumes are uh such well-crafted tight stories and they go they handle so well um Black Dossier is more of an exploration of the world. Yep. Um, and the art form. And the art form. But the uh, but the actual, like, story that's in it starts to get a little more loose. But it's still, like, you know, they go to a place. They go to another place. They're on the run. They get they escape. Yeah. Um, by the time it gets to Century, uh, especially the stuff in 2008, if you didn't know what those references were, yeah. there's no, like, <laughs> there's no way you could comprehend what was going on. And Tempest yeah. is... Not only do you need to catch all these references, mm-hmm. but you need you have to have read every previous. Oh, you do. Okay, uh, so it is it is a reward for those who have paid attention yes, to the continuity. I mean, okay. yeah, it is the full like conclusion of that arc. You definitely need to have read all of the rest of the series to catch up to it. Where is Nemo's daughter in terms of the timeline in Tempest? Is she There's old three. Nemo's daughter? Or is she oh, in Tempest? Yeah, uh, Nemo's daughter. Because there's certain volumes is, where she's young, and but then there's later on she's like an old lady. Yes, and, and, I believe that she has already died. Okay, by 2010, which uh, is when this takes place. Um, her son, 
uh, Jack mm-hmm. is the. Um, oh, OK. And that is another thing that uh, Alan Moore enjoyed a lot more, I think, than his readers did was showing the descendants of these uh, characters yeah. and showing them like, you know, becoming new. And he's he's not just he's the descendant of um, the House of Nemo and the House of Robur. Um and the House of Manfred, which are all the big like mm-hmm. uh, the or Moors, the House of Moors as well. So it's like, uh, but but that again started to feel kind of uh, not lazy, but like a missed opportunity to me. Where you go to Lincoln Island, and rather than take all of these people who would have been practicing and acting criminals, and then reverse engineer their genealogies back or or those kind of things, he just was like, that's the granddaughter of Ishmael. Yeah. And rather than being like, okay, but is she also a character from something else? No. And that started to feel like a little bit of a missed opportunity where I was like, the whole world of fiction is open to you and you're starting to have shots that are totally filled with characters that only exist because of the continuity of League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Some of those, you know. He brought me, he may have even almost exhausted himself. Like, oh my God, I've set up so much. It it becomes less about all of that and more about what he's just interested in at any given moment, which is fine. You know, it's like, that's his, it's Alan Moore for God's sake. And it's not like he uh, was short for references. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, it's not. not What is your, of the league books, which one's your favorite? If you start volume one, volume two, Um, century, et cetera. I would probably say volume, it's, it's hard. I really love Black Dossier. Mm -hmm. I, I, uh, You're the first person to say that to me because I bought it. I just I love the art artifact of it. Like it is referenced itself inside the story. So you're holding yeah. this thing that they're talking about and you're seeing just the diversity of content. But a lot of people, it's a hard read for them, I think. Yeah, it, it wasn't what they it wasn't volume three. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't yeah. the storyline uh, they wanted. I um, I think what I really liked about it most is the just this the actual black uh, dossier story the yeah. outside of the, the content. Yeah. Um, Taking all of those great spy movies like the 39 Steps and the Third yeah. Man and all that and then folding it in with all of the like it was just hilarious to me that they took Greyfriars, uh, which is this thing that I was only kind of vaguely aware of as a pop culture thing. That I was like, yeah, it's a British boys school. There were stories about a British boys school. But then that like Alan Moore took each of the main characters and turned them into the like that was one where I thought he did that so well. That idea of he took five different spy TV shows and then he took each of the characters from those and managed to by just making their giving them name changes and aliases make them the five boys from Greyfriars yeah, and like yeah. seeing how all of that and that like Harry Lime is Robert Cherry and yes, like yes. that there were all these moments where I was like brilliant yeah, brilliant yeah. Um, the, the but that's when he started to uh, loose the reins on the publication date stuff. Yeah. And true. that shook me off. Like all the rocket ships, I get that. Um, but they fly in Fireball, you know, the the predecessor to Fireball XL5. Um, but Fireball XL5 took place in a specific time. Like Stingray, a lot of this, um, of this, of Tempest involves the Super Marionation show from the 1960s, Stingray. I love Stingray. Stingray is awesome. I love all the Super Marionation shows. But Stingray specifically took place in the 2060s. Like, that was a big part of the context of the show. And Alan Moore always said that the rule for League was things happen the day they were published, unless the date is explicitly stated in, in, the, uh, in the text. Mm-hmm. But then he just decided it was more fun to have rocket ships and stuff. Yeah. And that was yeah. when I saw him starting to, like, let the rules slide a little bit, which 
gave him more leeway and he got to tell a crazier story, which I guess is great. But at the same time, I see that's when people start to like to slip. Um, also, his references just started to get way deeper. Mm-hmm. Um, he started to make you dig uh, more. And mm-hmm. Century goes way out of control with that. Century took me a good two or three times through and then mm-hmm. not even necessarily in order to really sort of wrap my head around. Because I, I bought it as the collected final volume. Um as a graphic novel, which I think is probably the best way to consume it. But yeah. I was just like, Oh my God, there's, there's so much here. I, oh man, I think, I think eventually it will become my favorite of the, of the four. I haven't read all of Tempest yet. Um, not really counting the one shots in that, I, yeah. that first volume as a, if you want to just get into, if you're a younger reader or somebody who's maybe not as sophisticated in comics yet, um, or just doesn't have the time to really delve into the references, that first volume is so accessible. It is. It's and for that, I love it too. You could you could fill one bookshelf, one kind of small bookshelf, with the books necessary to catch almost all the references. Yeah, yeah. Um, and a lot know. of them you've already known, like Sherlock Holmes and all of that that literary stuff. Like they they reference it. it's very. You will have heard of a lot of that, if not and most of it. One of the best choices that he made, very specifically, was um, we don't. Uh, there will be no Sherlock Holmes. There will be no Dracula. Yeah. Because he thought that the presence of those two characters would would uh, overshadow everything else. But we have characters from their mythologies and that's like true. Mycroft and, and, and Mina yeah, and, and, and loca- locations and stuff like that. Um, the not saying the name of Dracula though, yeah, you know, was very useful. Yeah. Um, the. Uh, yeah, I uh, and it also meant that when we finally have a moment where she says Dracula's name, there's yeah. this great ownership moment yeah, to it. Yeah, um, I love that. Yeah, I always thought that. Obviously, there was the terrible film adaptation of it, which um, oh, yeah, what a <laughs> it's 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 an, its own entire thing. Oh. Um, that's something that would you know deserves a, like a commentary track. Let me something. ask you, okay, real, so on that note, should I feel this is one of those books that should never be adapted outside of the comics medium? It just doesn't work. Um, I. I would agree with you, especially seeing how the series is gone. I think that they could, uh, that you could take a, a good team of animators and animate the first uh, volume, yes, um, with really good voice actors You're right. and things like that. Yeah. And if you took the care to not just go panel by panel, but really take the care that they did, where okay, this shot is a reference to a 1944 cartoon in which blah, blah, blah happened. Mm -hmm. You know, like, there needs to be that level of care given to it where shots are framed where you're like, oh, they're doing uh, Fritz Lang's M. Yes. You know what I mean? Like, you you need that stuff in it as well. I love that pitch. It's what we always talk about where um, I don't believe that The Dark Tower could ever be effectively adapted into a film. Mm-hmm. If you did it though, film and reference to film and mm-hmm. the existence of the films needs to be as much of a factor in it as books and the references to books and the existence of the books are to the story of the Dark Tower. Fair enough. Like you no. can't have people filming, you can't have a scene in New York City uh, you know, that you you have to reference the idea that that there's a film being made because yeah, yeah. it's an important part of the story. Sure. And same thing with League. Like you could adapt it just perfectly that first volume almost frame for frame scene for scene but it wouldn't be worth anything yeah. unless you actually took the effort to do more yeah you know? i love oh i love that assessment um can we go to the lightning round yeah absolutely we have i mean we we could talk about both this and x-men forever and ever. Oh, yeah. um but we have a new tradition on these fireside chats where we have a lightning round and we've had two two contestants so far so and i've given you some of these questions already okay, so yeah I'm, uh, I'm, I'm there's a, there's gonna be a new one or two uh he-man or gi joe he-Man. Why? 
I think He-Man is more wish fulfillment oh, uh, than G.I. Joe. G.I. Joe, those, all those people are like specially trained operatives. They require like a life. Like you have to be like astronauts. You're like, I want to be an astronaut. And they're like, do you know calculus and Russian? <laughs> and are you uh, like the peak of human uh, fitness right now? Because then sure, you can be an astronaut. But otherwise, you know, they're, but He-Man, like I pick up a sword and I yeah. shout and all of a sudden I have the powers of a god. Like it's it's Captain Marvel, man. It's Shazam. It's that True. ultimate wish fulfillment yeah. of like, I'm a child. You can't make me go to bed. Oh man! Well, so done. that yeah, that's my favorite Ghostbuster, Egon. Oh, actually, he's pulling something out of a bag, folks. What is it right. going to be? Oh my god! This is my <gasps> Egon from Ghostbusters Two courtroom scene action figure. <laughs> um, I'm going to take a picture of this and put it on Instagram. Oh yeah, this absolutely. Is amazing. I didn't bring all of his accessories, but no, I love I love Egon. I love Harold Ramis oh. um, in general. Um, I was just so heartbroken when he passed away, and the fact that it was so clear that like. He died, and they were like, "Start the engines," you know. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, Do you like the the notion? We don't know yet, but the notion that he might be the uh, owner of the farm in this upcoming Ghostbusters movie this summer, like. Well, I guess, but it's this, but I don't understand that mostly because, uh, um, uh, oh, I don't know why. Anyway, um, that's all right. We don't have to talk about that. No, uh, no. My my biggest issue is that Dan Aykroyd's family mortgage got a third mortgage on their family farm. He mortgaged his parents' farm. Uh, and I'm like, oh, so it's Ackroyd's farm. You know, it's got to be. And they're like, no, it's Egon's farm. And I'm like, Egon's farm? That, what? Uh, that makes sense. Um, but yeah. whatever. I'm I'm not holding this movie to – I'm holding it to Rise of Skywalker standards, man. That is I'm a like, good comparison. I bet, I bet they're going to make a competent <laughs> Ghostbusters movie. And yeah. they're going to make a lot of money, sell a lot of toys. Yeah. Uh, best Batman in any medium? Kingdom Come Batman. Ooh. Kingdom Come Batman is Ooh. my favorite version of the character. Wow. He is uncompromising. He, uh, but he's morally perfectly clear, and you'd never know what he's doing until the moment he takes action. Wow, um, good like one. that, yeah, that would be my, um, that would be my dream depiction of of Batman in a in a film. Wow, know? that is that is a fresh take on that. That you know, I, I love the Kingdom Come Batman, but man, I've never, I would have never considered him in my top five, and I might have to rethink that. Yeah, love I that. think he's great. Uh, favorite Marvel movie to date? That one, I'm. I really struggle with. You can pick two um, or three if you want. Yeah, so I uh, would say I really uh, I think that Thor Ragnarok brought so much energy back into the Marvel movies when I was feeling really exhausted with them. So I would say that one holds um, a special place. Um, you know, obviously Winter Soldier is just a really solid mm-hmm. uh, spy movie. Um, yeah, I would probably say those those two are my favorites as far as like the standalone. Um, individual like character movies. Um, well, that first Iron Man movie is so solid. That's al- you almost have to take that off the list because yeah, because it's of, like it's, uh, it's yeah. the archetype of it. Um, but no, I don't know. I um, they all kind of blur together for me. Okay, I, it's so much easier to come up to come up with like a bottom five than oh. it is. You know what I mean? What's your bottom five? My bottom five in no particular order. You got the the second Thor movie is pretty bad. The first Thor movie is pretty bad. <laughs> um, though there, I, I liked a lot more of that first Thor movie. Kenneth Branagh directed it. Yeah, so obviously yeah, yeah. Had more going on for it. Um, so I would probably say you know uh, Ant Man two. Um, Again, fun but kind of forgettable. Yeah. The most recent Spider-Man movie, Homecoming, yeah. was really forgettable. Yeah. Um, I'd agree. Captain Marvel, while yeah. competent, was forgettable. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, I like that you didn't put Iron Man two in there because that's actually one of my top three. For oh yeah, no, I like Iron Man two. I like a lot of people uh, I just like Sam it, Rockwell. I... 
that honestly and carries the whole freaking movie. He does, and I would also say, um, oh god, I just forgot his dang name. The other guy who plays Take his bird away. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, what's his, his shoes? What's his name? What's the what, what's the other guy's? Oh, yeah, the actor. Shoot, Mickey Rourke. Oh Mickey yeah, Mickey Rourke, Rourke crushes that character. Like he just is having. You can just tell he's having so much damn fun. Yes, just doing whatever he I, wants. And he's menacing too when he needs to be. Um, um, favorite comic book shop. Oh, storytellers. Great. Oh, again, another shout out to storytellers. Um, Independence Day or Men in Black? Men in Black. Yeah, definitely Men in Black. Better uh, all around cast. Mm-hmm. Um, well, definitely better effects work. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh my god. Uh, yeah, I'd say I, I can't think of a of a category where it is superseded by Independence Day. Men in Black, all the way. Cool. Uh, best song from the eighties. Y Y Z. Uh, from Rush's 1981 album, Moving Pictures. Whoa. Which I will say uh, that entire album is fantastic. The first half of that album is it's so good. But one of the reasons I'm, regardless of whether it is, you know, I think as far as like musical competency, three guys at their, like at the summit of their abilities performing at, you know, uh, the peak of what is available to them, like, just just an incredible couple of minutes. Um, Moving Pictures was an awesome album because Rush had, uh, they had had their very, their 70s, early 70s stuff where it was much more like Led Zeppelin kind of. Um, the first album, Rush, that Neil Peart wasn't the drummer on and then Fly By Night. But, and then they did more prog rock stuff like 2112, but Moving Pictures is the first album where they kind of took all of that stuff that they had done in those prog rock 18 minute long tracks and they started cutting three four minute long radio tracks mm. that were, some of the best, most accessible, like getting people into synthesizers and like mm-hmm. crazy songs about a futuristic world where cops chase people on robo bikes, you know, like all that stuff is so good. But Neil Peart died uh, yeah. a couple like uh, yeah. last month. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. And so I've just been listening to so much Rush and I've just uh, it like holds such an important place for me um the yyz off of that album is great but if you can listen to uh the version of it that they did in rio uh for their 30th anniversary tour that's like the creme de la creme of yyz it's just incredible but yeah so that's that's what i'd say final question this is a new one too best use of bill murray in a movie and you can't say ghostbusters best use of bill murray in a movie um honestly i would probably say life aquatic Oh, um, interesting. Yeah, because he he carries the film. He's not just sitting in a chair. He's not Cameron Mitchelling it. You know what I mean? He's not just sitting in a chair uh, to be in the movie. Yeah. And it was one of uh, it was one of the last ones I had seen him in for a while, um, or maybe first ones in a while. But it's like when you see Harrison Ford in a movie and you're like, oh, my God, he's here. He's actually on set. He's trying. <laughs> that. Like, there's, yeah, no, there's yeah. no point in uh, Life Aquatic where um, – it doesn't seem like Bill Murray is trying. Yeah. Whereas like in um, even some other Wes Anderson films like uh, Moonrise Kingdom, yeah. you know, where there yeah. are some scenes where uh, the dialogue is great and the direction is great and Bill Murray is just reading the lines. He's just there. You know? yeah. So I would say, yeah, that's the best because he not only drives the plot, but he also like uh, he's he, consistently he there. He's interested. He cares. Okay. 
Um, to close out, I want to do a little promo too. Charles and I have a mutual af- affection and love of a little '60s show called The Prisoner, which you may have heard of. There was a, a interesting AMC reboot of it, not reboot, actually a mini series of it uh, about ten-ish years ago. Um, that was probably the last iteration of it. But there's it's popping up a lot on Amazon, on other streaming channels, and so it's kind of getting rediscovered. Charles and I are doing a companion podcast called The Village Idiots where we dissect each episode. And because each episode, much like Alan Moore, is so jam-packed with nuance and interesting, very, just all this. Symbolism, yeah. They are so dense. I almost feel like when I first watched it, I was like, I want somebody to tell me how to interpret this. (laughs) And so I'm like, we'll just do that. And Charles, I luckily discovered this is one of his favorite things ever and so it was like well let's naturally do this so we'll be launching that um either it's either out now if you're listening to this or shortly we'll be coming out do you have anything any other take on it i mean anything about the prisoner you you want to tease up real quick um it's one of those things we talked about rosemary's baby where you see uh so many things in pop culture that you're just used to being a thing that people reference uh, if you watch The Prisoner, you're going to catch so many things that you've ne- that you've been like, oh, that's where the giant white ball comes from. Or, yep. Oh, that's where the numbers on everybody's shirts come. You know, like all that kind of stuff. And even just the idea of serialized TV or even like kind of avant-garde TV, which a lot of people say um, uh, Twin Peaks. Is that right? Yeah, Twin yeah. Peaks was the first kind of, you know, mm. really broke the mold. I think it's I think it's The Prisoner. Yeah. And it was like 30 years ahead of its time. Um, and we're just now, I think, really start with all the peak TV we have now and all the interesting creative writing going on, like The Prisoner, really, you can almost draw a line directly from it to the recent Watchmen series. To, I was That's exactly the line that was in my head because yeah. it's a perfect example of what happens when you let someone who is talented and competent just do what they want to do. Yeah. And don't yeah. put a whole lot of uh, like constraints or restrictions on them. And you will get, for better or worse, one person's image, which... I feel like that's the, you know, without getting into a whole Rise of Skywalker thing, the, the the biggest overarching problem with that entire new trilogy is too many people yeah. looking at, you know, with their own ideas of where the, of the, we need one person with a vision yep. uh, to kind of, you need your Kevin Figgy. That's a great note to end on, sir. Um, thank you so much. Yeah, it's been great for you. Man. Thanks for coming in. Um, if you want to hear more episodes like this, check us out. If you're listening and you aren't subscribed, find us wherever you find podcasts. Search for Panelism. You can also go to panelism.inc. Go to our back catalog. Uh, look at other shows on the Panelism Network. Um, the Hardy Boys Drink Book Podcast, which is just about to wrap up. Look for that wherever you find podcasts. Um, also search for the Village Idiots. We'll be launching that too. And anything else you want to plug or promote? No, I mean, that's all, man. Thanks for having me. Awesome, thanks. And uh, listen, check, check us out in our next episode. <laughs> Happy listening. I never know how to end these things. They yeah. just kind of end, you know? Yeah, at least with the Village Idiots. Be seeing you. Be seeing you, Taylor. That's right. Be seeing you, Charles. Yeah.